regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold long-form in-depth conversations with data and AI practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journey of the career. My guest today is Dr. Eric Demler, an authority in artificial intelligence with over 20 years of experience in the field as an entrepreneur, executive, investor, technologist, and policy advisor. Eric has co-founded six technology companies that have done pioneering work in fields ranging from software system to statistical arbitrage. As a presidential innovation fellow during the Obama administration, Eric has drive agenda for U.S. leadership in research, commercialization, and public adoption of AI. He has also served as the assistant dean and an assistant professor of software engineering in Carnegie Mellon's School of Computer Science. His academic research focuses on the intersection of machine learning, computational linguistics, and network science. He has a specialization in public policy and economics, have launched Carnegie Mellon's Silicon Valley campus, and founded its entrepreneurial management program. As a frequent keynote speaker, Eric has presented at venues including the Engineering School of MIT, Stanford, and Harvard. He studied at Stanford University, the University of Washington in Seattle, and Carnegie Mellon University, where he earned his PhD in his School of Computer Science. So Eric, uh, it's really my pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, James. It's good to be here. So by way of introduction, I saw that you got your bachelor degree in Computer Science and Managerial Economics at Carnegie Mellon in the early 90s. How was your overall academic experience there? I had an unusual path, I think, starting off. I grew up in around Seattle, and I was a precocious kid doing a, an Eagle Scout project as part of being a Boy Scout. I enrolled people into taking a neighborhood survey to solicit interest in bringing out the public bus system to our suburban neighborhood. You may think of as being altruistic, which it may have been, but my motivation was as multifaceted. I uh, successfully did this and gendered interest enough to motivate the, the bus system to come out so that I could take the bus into the University of Washington and take computer science classes. That's what I was doing, which sounds terribly aggressive, I guess I might say, you know, for a 14-year-old, 15-year-old, old I was, but that's what I did. Uh, it was pretty funny. I had a great time. I, I was studying systems analysis. My high school calculus I did at, at the University of Washington, you know, when I was young, and then also, you know, completed all the required high school work. So I then was already somewhat of a university student. You know, today people transfer credits all the time from high school. I did it, I guess, in a different way. I had then just looked around the world about where the best schools of computer science were. And, and it was pretty clear. It was Stanford, MIT, Carnegie Mellon. I applied and got into all of them. I ended up choosing uh, really just Carnegie Mellon over Stanford, somewhat because of the cost, actually. At the time, Stanford was about three times Carnegie Mellon. So frankly, some of it was a cost. But also, I did it because my rationale at the time, which I'm, I'm glad aged well, was that there is a higher uh, student-faculty ratio, a better, a more favorable to the student-faculty uh, student ratio at Carnegie Mellon than there was at Stanford. The importance I put on that was, or my thinking at the time, was that I would have a chance to work with professors and work in research more easily than I would at Stanford. Be very smart people going to both schools, but the, the competition might be just a little too hard to get those sort of research appointments at a young age at Stanford. And so I, I'm really happy that I uh, made that choice. What I didn't count on, however, I didn't count on that while Seattle is cloudy, it is notoriously cloudy. And that's true. Pittsburgh is the second cloudiest big city in the country. And that was just an unfair suppression of facts by the school. I did not appreciate that they didn't tell me that, that sort of stuff in advance. So I am glad I went there for the school. And the city has its charms, as it does Western Pennsylvania. 
But the cloudiness, oof, that was something I, I really, I thought I was getting away from. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for sharing all the details of how you got into taking classes growing up in Seattle and even choosing Carnegie Mellon for your undergrad. It sounds like you cultivate that problem-solving mindset at such a young age, you know, figure things out. Uh, and that how a little bit with, with some of your later on career decision. And the reason you choose Carnegie Mellon is really on the cost and like the, the research opportunities at the time, right? And go deeper a little bit onto your undergrad experience. Would you recall any favorite classes that you take in either CS or economics, if you can? Yeah. You know, at the University of Washington, I took a class in systems analysis. That was great. A real eye-opener. I will say some of the computer science classes were probably less of a revelation and the math classes were, were less of a revelation than were classes that I hadn't uh, been exposed to kind of at that level, such as those in economics, even in history or biology. Those were interesting adjuncts to my education there. You know, what I really enjoyed, and I, I think this was true of the time that I did go back and spend at Stanford and the time that I had I've, I've spent with colleagues at MIT is the people really make a big difference. So really what sticks out is not the classes, it's really the people. And this became even more important when I went into graduate school. I didn't really begin to appreciate the degree to which the people around we would make a big difference. I'm pretty good at, at standardized tests and I'm pretty good going through the coursework, but some of these are pretty hard. <laughs> and, and they're not just hard like by themselves, they're kind of hard psychologically. And so I found it to be just infinitely more pleasant and perhaps just doable by bringing in other people around me, bringing in friends. And so I would be studying with others. We'd be helping each other out in studying so that my mantra always was, you know, study in a group, recall alone, but study in a group. So I, I always practice my recall for exams, but when I was collecting information and when I was, when I was going through a big dense tomes of work, uh, then doing it with others uh, was terrific. And that's, that's really what I remember early on. You know, my, my weekend nights, I, I don't think uh, anybody would want to take lessons from me for my social life. I would spend it in the library. <laughs> it was, it was, and I thought that was cool, actually. And we would take breaks like playing video games, and that would be it. And then we'd go back to work. And that it was fun, actually. I grew up in spending way too much time in a basement, you know, surrounded by electronics. You know, that's me at 10 and 12, mm -hmm. you know, building my own computer. But in college, just surrounded by really terrific people is uh, how I spent my days. Yeah. Thanks for sharing all those anecdotes. It sounds like you really fascinated technology at such a young age and kind of surrounding yourself in that environment with fellow technologies is, is really a crucial fuel to put on your career later on. So we talked about some of your experience with graduate school later on, but before that, I kind of want to step back into your career. So for the first four years of your career, you work as a quant analyst at Merrill Lynch and then Morgan Stanley. What were some of the most valuable lessons that you learned as a quant analyst? I went into finance at that time because in that generation, at that time, it was the place to go to get a lot of responsibility at a young age. And that's really what I was going for. I had started a couple of very modest companies you know, even earlier, you know, when I was a teenager, just seems also kind of silly, but I wanted to go learn more about that, you know, on somebody else's dime. Really when venture capital was a nascent industry and not the thing it is today, going into these big banks, and in my case, being a quantitative analyst, a quant, in the vernacular was what was appropriate. Again, fantastically smart, motivated people. I enjoyed some nice portion of that. What I did how that when that started was I dropped out of a PhD program. I'd like to say before it was fashionable to take a job that I could not refuse by doing what was ridiculously glamorous work from the outside. <laughs> You know, fly, flying around the world and advising government on their finances. And, you know, it's literally what we did. I mean, I was number three on a team of three. So, you know, to be clear that I was a junior guy, but what we did was pretty heady work. The revelation came when I left that job in London to come back to New York and was on the trading floor when the Mosaic browser got released. Hmm. That was a, a quite an event for me. I still recall it as vividly as others sometimes recall these big uh, tragedies in their lives. So the release of the Mosaic browser wasn't a tragedy, 
but I remember it that vividly and that I was on the floor and other people were suddenly huddled around one of our machines showing this. This was, I forget whether it was during the trading day or after the trading day, uh, after the markets closed, but probably after so people, there's enough people huddling around that would, that would have been noticed. And they're huddling around this machine showing the browser and people are trying to figure out what it was, what it was and try and asking each other, what does this thing do? And what would I even use it for? I mean, they really said it in a way that a Hollywood screenplay could be written. I had a, a weird feeling in my body when I saw it. It was as as odd as one might imagine. I am happy to know that I recognized it immediately, but I really did recognize it immediately. I quit that job. You know, if it wasn't the next day, like within a couple of days, I just remember being on the West Coast interviewing with companies that next week. My girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, you know, was getting calls from me about, hey, this is what I'm talking, who I'm talking to. And I, I was fortunate to be in a position where I got a lot of companies interested in me. And I actually had two different offers and they were very different. So I got one offer to be a venture capitalist on Sand Hill Road for a big deal firm. And I'd have my own office with this beautiful view of the forest in Menlo Park, California, or I would work up in Seattle, downtown, in a kind of a grungy neighborhood, in kind of a grungy building, working off of these doors that were converted into desks. And I would have been, you know, the company was growing super quickly. It got funded by one of the venture capitalists in Sand Hill Road. So I would have been, I had a job offer where I would have been something on the order of, it was a employee 72 or 73, badge number 72 or 73, I was told reporting to the CFO, uh, Joy Covey at the time. And my wife said, no, I think I, uh, I think like a venture capital job sounds good. Plus it's better weather. <laughs> so, so I took the job on Sand Hill Road instead of going to Seattle and working what, what became an e-commerce behemoth. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think we probably know which one that is. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like, you know, during your time working as a quant analyst, you get the best trade of the finance world and then the moment you recognize the internet revolution with the Mosaic browser, you understood that you need to get into technology as fast as possible. And that sort of triggered this moment when you want to move west right away and then joining the Silicon Valley, right? Yeah. And to be clear, everybody in Silicon Valley has collected these stories. If you spend enough time in and around these technology companies, I think it's inevitable that you create one. Hopefully you don't do this more than once, but I know plenty of people that have turned down jobs from, you know, in my case, turning down a job at Amazon, but others turning down jobs at name your big famous company where they could have made, you know, a lot of money and made their careers. It's given me a different perspective on the people that are often regarded in the press as geniuses, because I know people that didn't take those jobs and I don't think that they're less smart. Perfect. Staying back into your time, when you first moved to San Diego, so that is in 1997, you joined Ventures as a principal, where you invested in the establishment and growth of early to mid-stage information technology and license firm. So you spent about, I believe, about four years there, all the way to the early 2000s. So what challenges did you recall about venture investing in the dot-com boom? That was a fun time. You know, I, I did well in that part of my career, but obviously we'll uh, have enough self-awareness to not confuse genius with a bull market. <laughs> it was, you know, a lot of money was created uh, very, very quickly and in really weird ways. I remember the adage taught to me, which is don't confuse a clear vision with a short time horizon. So I certainly knew other people with whom we would share our vision of the future. And a lot of people could be thinking that, Uh, your phone would evolve from what was then a Palm Pilot into a BlackBerry and into something resembling an iPhone, although nobody could articulate it. Nobody could have articulated the App Store, right? But also, you know, nobody could have really articulated Minecraft with a particular specificity that they could have acted on. I do remember a funny story. IBM created this whole creative around the e-commerce business. So they'd used an ampersand, but they used an E instead of it. They had the idea that web pages were, were going to be going away. So they came the closest to actually articulating the future of apps, you know, you know, mobile technology as a way to be interacting and that browsers would be declining in importance. This is way back in 1998, but they couldn't act on it. And you know, they, they knew that would happen, but they couldn't actually see necessarily where that would go. So we saw a lot of the excesses and we saw a lot of the limitations 
but you know, people did what they could. The one that I saw, and this is unfortunately an investment of mine, was, was this company called Quokka Sports. So I, first of all, did well. You know, they did well by investing early in Hotmail. We invested, or my firm invested early in Netflix, right? You've heard of these firms, right? That we did well, but there was one, there was one that did not turn out so well, Quokka Sports, that had some really smart people. It was founded by the guy that designed the hole for the Australian boat that then won the America's Cup for the first time away from the Americans. So it was a very big deal. So he knew about fluid dynamics. It was unclear whether he knew about other sort of businesses, but nonetheless, we gave him money. The idea was that with the internet, interest in some sports, we today might call them long tail sports, would allow a audience aggregation to then become meaningful to advertisers. His was sailing, but you can think of others like Formula One racing that might not have had the size to justify uh, airtime on TV at the time, even with cable, but with the internet might allow some viewership to be aggregated and then monetized. You think of sailing, you think of driving, you might even think of like equestrian sports or motorcycle racing or some such thing. And this became a reasonable argument because of the existence of the internet, because of the existence of small cameras that could then be put around a race course. But despite that clear vision, it wasn't going to happen soon. This became evident when we went to their launch party. It was a big deal, tens of thousands of dollars spent, the rollout of the product, watching a race. And the video wasn't of the action. It was actually of an abstraction of the action. It was a two-dimensional bird's eye representation of the race. And that's not fun to watch. You know, if you could just imagine, you know, imagine like an oval, it's not really an oval, but you know, imagine oval race course, unfortunately F1s are a little more intricate, but imagine oval race course, and then imagine dots driving around the course and creating uh, trails behind them. That's just not interesting. It's uh, there's like no version of a two-dimensional race like that that really becomes fun to watch. It's really because while the connectivity was there, the bandwidth wasn't. While the cameras existed, the fidelity for their images didn't exist. So the total package wasn't really available to fulfill on the vision of that business. It was a lesson learned the hard way. So we had some successes in that business that, that I, was, I was fortunate to have, but you know, some, some things that were not as successful. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. It's tricky. It's like even if you had the photo, the talent with very excellent vision, is ultimately the market, the momentum of what's going on with the technology, capabilities at the time, still going to be the biggest factor of determining whether or not Avengers are going to succeed or not, right? So that was an excellent story that I'm sure a lot of people who are interested in making investment can, can learn more about later on. And so you spent about four years as a VC down there. But then after that, you spent about one short year in the executive team at a startup called Zambio. And there you have initiated and led all aspects of business development and sales. So yeah, what were some of your core responsibility as an executive at Zambio? It was after this time during the dot-com bubble that I decided I wanted to go back and finish my PhD. So I really just oriented my life towards going back. I wanted to help out some friends that remained in venture capital, the venture capital business, and, and help them out in getting some of their companies going during what we'll call the dot-com winter. Not a lot of companies were getting funded there. I went to help out in the operations, getting a Carnegie Mellon campus off the ground in Silicon Valley. And then I, I had to apply, like everybody else, apply to the PhD programs at Stanford that I got into to then redo my, my PhD because I was living in Northern California at the time and that seemed like the appropriate place to go. I stayed there not so long before my, my friends at Carnegie Mellon asked me to go to CMU and, and complete my program there with their offer that if I was able to get my own research funding, that then I would be able to create my own agenda. So you know how PhD programs work is you, you really go there as an apprentice to a professor and that professor is your teacher, your Yoda. So Yoda, Yoda gets to kind of employ you and, and mentor you in research while you take classes that it has its strengths and weaknesses. So what is often little appreciated about PhD programs is the degree to which 
you want to actually pick the professor, perhaps more than the department or more than the school. It just so happens that some of these schools, Stanford, Carnegie Mellon, MIT, Berkeley, just have fantastic professors. But there's nothing like just being on your own, having freedom. So I had just enjoyed the career success that just allowed me to find my own research funding. And at Carnegie Mellon, I could have that freedom with the research funding, where at Stanford, they're not, they're not willing to have that conversation. So at Stanford, you start the PhD program, and then you, for a year, you're on your own, you're paying tuition, and then you select a professor to go under. I did the really silly thing of enrolling at Stanford, and then looking at Carnegie Mellon and saying, well... I think I'm going to do that, but I don't want to drop the Stanford program. So for a while, I was actually enrolled in both, <laughs> which is ethically and, you know, ethically, both, you know, in spirit and in, and in law and of allowed, but it is crazy craziness. That was, there are some things that are hard for me. That was, that was very hard. Two PhD programs at the same time, even though they're somewhat complementary, somewhat overlapping, that was tough. <laughs> so I lasted a year doing that before I dropped, uh, dropped Stanford and then went back to Carnegie Mellon to finish uh, where I finished and ended up finishing my PhD program, I will say, on the faculty and uh, enjoyed an administrative role. But that's where I restarted and, and completed my academic work. And your PhD work at Carnegie Mellon is on computational economics, if I'm correct? Yeah, that's what the research uh, really oriented around was, was computational economics. During that time, there was a lot of funding that went into graph theory. So after, this is, this is going back to 9-11, where we were trying to analyze uh, terrorist networks, the mathematics of graph theory were found to be really useful about analyzing these social networks, really. How this got expressed in the military is that if one of the bad actors was going to do something, they would often actually talk about it first. This is in the research uh, quite with some frequency that it's often maybe represented in Hollywood as the criminal going back to the scene of the crime. Well, what also happens is criminals will, and terrorists the same way, will indicate what they're going to do before they do it. They'll often say what they're going to do before they do it, because in many cases, they want the respect that, and if they're not getting in the respect, then they'll apply violence. So what you can do is you can look in the newspapers. We looked in the Arabic newspapers, and we found people communicating with each other about what they were going to do. What was required in the old way was taking the newspapers, translating from Arabic to English, and then synthesizing everything in English for the commanders. That's slow and it's error prone, of course, for kind of obvious reasons. But machines can do this with some alacrity. What we did is we automated this process using techniques in computational linguistics that are, that are now pretty easy. And then we apply graph theory to connect the social networks so that information could be given to commanders for them to disrupt the terrorist networks. And that's exactly what they did. And that's exactly how those terrorist networks got disrupted. It wasn't random. It was quite organized. You could look at where you needed to, in the words of the Defense Department, apply kinetic energy to disrupt these terrorist networks into throughout that decade. I mean, it's really the way in which that effort was won, I guess, to the extent that it has been. What I did is I took that work around social networks and applied that to corporate malfeasance. So if you're going to have fraud inside of a company, often you'll find the same behavior. People will indicate that they're going to do bad things in advance of them doing it. Now, they may not say that out loud in the same way that criminals or terrorists may do that, but they will change their, often we'll find change their behavior. So what we were able to do is, uh, I'm saying speak broadly about my research group, is we were able to look at communications patterns between the executives. Hmm. And now you might say, well, hey, how can you possibly do that in a company that matters? You know, if you have a company with 10,000, let alone 100,000 employees or more, that's a lot of communication you're going to analyze, which is true. So we couldn't actually tell you, hey, you got to watch out for uh, Eric or, or, or whomever. What we did do is we were able to narrow down into a group that suddenly changed their patterns. And what would happen would be you'd no longer have two people communicating in the same way. This is what 
a change in behavior expressed itself. So James and Eric were talking a lot. Their emails used to be long. Suddenly they're really short. And now they're all going through Edward. And Edward's now an intermediary. Why is that? And all the emails are shorter. So you couldn't say that they're doing something bad, but you could say with some degree of confidence that if you would like to do an audit somewhere in that company, that might be a good place to start. And that proved to be uh, useful, just like there's probabilistic uh, preventative maintenance. It's done on machines. You need to guess, have educated guesses about where to apply your efforts. Uh, We did the same thing with communications predicting fraud. What we then did, so that's in corporate malfeasance. What we then did is we extended that to predicting behavior in the public markets. The particular interesting one today is looking at the central bank. So right now in the news, every couple of days, we read about the central bank potentially raising rates. Well, these central bankers will actually give speeches communicating to each other every quarter. They do this on a cadence. And you know they may have closed doors meetings, but the meetings are released in minutes that become public. So that you don't really have substantive discussions in the meeting minutes. You used to, around the time when they went from being private to them being released, there was a change in behavior. But now those are pretty well scripted. Everybody has to mention the stock market because no one wants to be caught not mentioning the stock market right before there's a crash. So there's a retrospective, right, for the history books. So no one wants to not mention that. That'll be in the minutes. But the speeches are a more considered venue with which to talk to your colleagues. That's what happens. They talk to their colleagues actually all out in public, trying to influence their colleagues' behavior. You can have machines analyze that for just some change in behavior. See how much did that affect the market and how much have they changed their behavior? How much did their colleagues change their behavior in their speech based on both the market and the previous speech? That's actually a fantastically rich area for research. I think it's an area that is frightening in some way because the computers begin to recognize our own behavior before we do. And it's almost something we can't control because we just, we talk the way we talk. But that's a wonderful part of the academic research that laid the foundation for me getting my degree. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for kind of sharing all the details related to some of this research direction that you focus on. And it's really amazing to see that sort of intersection between like Crop theory, machine learning, network science, public policy, economics, it seems like all of these areas that come together and form some of the core backbone structure, like how do you develop your academic treatments. So you, you mentioned a little bit about some of your involvement at CMU earlier, right? So you work as a as dean, you also work as a professor of software engineering. You also even have lunch at CMU's Silicon Valley campus and for its entrepreneurial management program. So yeah, can you just share a little bit of some of the details of some of these initiatives that you work on with the university? The university decided to get involved in Silicon Valley the way other a lot of universities at the time have decided to expand their primary engagement with the world. So the University of Pennsylvania has a physical campus in San Francisco, just to expand in, in how they're engaged in the United States. But many universities now are exploring campuses from Singapore, that's a popular base, to countries in the Middle East, from either uh, Qatar or Saudi Arabia itself, where some universities have branches. So for example, Texas A&M has uh, petroleum engineering in Doha, Qatar. You can really earn a degree from Texas A&M in Doha, Qatar. Uh, So towards that, you know, Carnegie Mellon looked to put a campus in Silicon Valley just to keep a conversation going for the research to become more relevant and for students to have another option beyond Stanford and Berkeley, which are are seen as the primary options for doing an elite technical education in Silicon Valley. So that's turned out well. You know, it turned out really well. It's based in the the NASA campus in Mountain View, right next to Google. So the location is just fantastic right off Mm -hmm. Highway 101. You see the signs going down uh, Highway 101 for the Carnegie Mellon University campus there. There are graduate programs, including the PhD programs there, that are everybody as good as what's available on the East Coast. It's a small campus, of course, but it is a, you know, does legit research. The awkward part, I will say, about the campus 
is that it used to be a Navy base, which was then given over to become a NASA base that has a security perimeter to it. That security perimeter shrunk. And so now it, it only comprises mostly this fantastically large wind tunnel, but the bigger space is not open in the same way that say downtown Mountain View, uh, California is open. You can't just go in and drive around. You have to do this weird little theater of showing a driver's license. And the reason, the reason isn't because they actually care about security. They're not actually checking you for anything. It's that legally, if they don't check for anything, then they are essentially opening it up. They are forfeiting their right to control the land in any regard. So they have to have what has been decided is that the minimal acceptable burden for securing their, their security fence is just checking for the existence of a, of a driver's license. It's the funniest thing. So that has proven to be difficult a difficult obstacle in pushing back the security fence. And that obstacle psychologically also makes it difficult for people to have casual visits. There's a person with a gun. Even <laughs> they're checking their driver's license, there's a person with a gun. And so it's just intimidating to dry it up to security like that. So it's been less successful than I think anybody had hoped. But that's the way it is. The broader Moffat Field has this silly security fence and the and the smaller wind tunnel has a military grade security. Part of it's been taken away. It's been eaten back by a lease from Google. So Google's purchased a portion and pushes it back a different way, but they've paid a, a lot of money <laughs> for that privilege. And then you know, part of the airstrip is now used for other things, thank goodness. It's a large airstrip, actually, Moffett Field is. It's, a, it's where Air Force One lands when it comes to town because it's a longer runway. Mm -hmm. And it's where... These old dirigibles, the hot air balloons, essentially, were located during uh, World War II for reconnaissance. Yeah, I definitely try to make a visit down to Samuel Campus down there to kind of see what you just described. Definitely better taking a look for sure. So continuing on the arc of your career, I believe that around 2007, 2008, you know, alongside some of the other Carnegie Mellon's competitions, PhD, you are actually the founding partner of Adrianatics, which is a quantitative investment management firm. So how did you navigate the journey of managing your own firm and raising funding from institutional hedge funds? That hedge fund was in statistical arbitrage, which is a fancy way of saying math. It's a math hedge fund. Now, a lot of hedge funds like to say that they're math. We were purely math. There are a couple of other pure math hedge funds, but they're rare. So Renaissance Technologies is a really famous one. They're quiet because they just don't need anybody. Jim Simmons is the founder of that and, and is one of the most successful investors of our lifetime because he just invests through math. That's all he does. Two Sigma is another one. They're just a group of fantastically smart people running a truly purely quantitative hedge fund. So that's what we were. I have a few pieces of career advice about this. And one I can say, you know, going back to around 9-11, you know, I remember that I was going out to help a company pitch some investors and we had scheduled some appointments. The traditional way you used to do this was while people were on vacation in August, you'd schedule some appointments for when they returned after Labor Day, so in September, and then you'd hit it hard, hopefully you get your term sheets early in September and then close in October before people went away in November, right? So that, was, that used to be the routine. And I did this pretty well, I think. I did this in the past. I was going to do this again in 2001. And I had all these appointments lined up, the first of which started on the 12th of September. But my advice then is never try doing fundraising the day after a major terrorist event. That's good career advice. We listen to that. The next piece of career advice I have is never try to grow a statistical arbitrage hedge fund right after a financial crisis blamed on statistical arbitrage. That's good career advice. You follow that. <laughs> you'll, you'll do well. So, you know, we, you know, the problem with uh, statistical arbitrage, and we started this out of our academic research where that same story that I told about linking behavior of terrorist networks and corporate malfeasance, we applied that similar structure to public equities. The linkages of public equities in that same way with graph theory and with other things, we were able to take things that were just computationally intractable and make a trading strategy out of them. And remember, in many of these cases, you only need to be right over 50% of the time and you can be plenty happy and your investors can be plenty happy. So we did that. 
this was not high frequency. This was just pure math. But the tough part is you need to collect money from investors to trade. Now, we did that, and we did that with, with a fairly a nice chunk of change, but you really always need to be growing. You need to be growing. And a couple of things happen. You know, one is in order to grow, you have to convince investors that what you're doing is intelligent. There's two ways to do that. One is either get them to understand the math or two, just show them a track record and say, hey, I know you don't understand it, but we've been doing it long enough that you can just guess that we're going to keep going. Well, the latter doesn't work for you if you're new. <laughs> so you have to do the former. But if you're at the former and a lot of the mathematicians that would understand what you're doing had just been fired because why? There was a financial crisis. You know, it makes that path really, really hard. I might even say impossible. You know, those were many of our students, you know, working at these places. So we had our PhDs in computer science. These were master's graduates, very, very smart people, but they were, they were no longer employed often at these other firms that would have been otherwise allocating money. So what the conclusion is of investors in that, in those cases, is that you could be selling insurance. So if you're selling insurance, then you're taking in money every month. You're taking in money every month until a disaster strikes and you have to pay out money, right? Then you go bankrupt. But if you didn't have enough money on your balance sheet, that's the nature of insurance. And people, that's the vernacular. People could say, well, I don't know if you're selling insurance. And if they don't under, understand the math, they're saying, well, great, you're making money, you're making money, you're making money. But how do I know some disaster is not going to strike and you're going to have to pay it all back again? So that's the difficulty with that particular business, but it was wonderful, wonderful people executing on, on a terrific strategy. I will say a funny little anecdote there. We got approached, and I think this was, boy, I think it was 2000. We started this in 2005. We think we started having the conversations in 2005. And then we actually started going out in 2007. And our first trade was 2009. We got approached by the Wall Street Journal as being the first hedge fund to use cloud computing. <laughs> that's how funny it was. That's how, I guess, recent or far, that just puts a stake in the ground about where, when cloud computing really took off. Every other, everybody else, apparently, were still using these very big computers. You know, Merrill Lynch, big computer in the basement. And so the idea was that we were using $500,000 worth of computing power for $5,000. That's one of the things that made our model possible. Yeah, thanks for sharing those stories. And I think this is really valuable for, for like younger generation of technologists to hear the early days a couple of decades ago on things like cloud computing or financial crisis, just to kind of get a perspective of how the tech corruption has changed a lot. And it's great to hear like perspective navigating that whole financial crisis and figuring out best strategy to do fundraising. You spent about like four years with that particular quant investment management firm, uh, I believe in New York, and then you returned back to the Bay Area. And then you was the managing director at another very early stage venture investment firm called Science, and basically helped some of the researcher to maximize the commercial potential for the IP, right? So I'm curious, like, what was some of the framework that your firm rely on to you know, identify research opportunities that were rife for commercialization? Yeah, for me, at a young age, it became clear that generically artificial intelligence was a future that interested me. It was a future on which I could stake my career and it would be of interest. There's a saying, I'll paraphrase it approximately. It's something to the effect of any technology that was built before you turned 15 is just background. It's all stuff that's like, it's just part of the firmament. Any technology that is invented between the time that you're 15 and we'll say 30 is technology upon which you think you might be able to build a career. Any technology that's invented after you turn 30, it's against the law of nature. You know, <laughs> it shouldn't exist. It's horrible. It's for the young kids. So, you know, somehow I was at the right stage where AI was hot in that place where I thought, huh, and maybe it was a little young for me, or I was a little young for it, but it was a place where I mean, maybe I could benefit, maybe I could stake my career on this. So I was always interested in AI and robotics and whatever it is for people when they're entering their careers and where they find themselves on that life cycle is important. At that particular time, during the early years of the Obama administration, I just found myself having spent a lot of years around this with a background that gave me a lot of exposure 
from having been a researcher, having been a venture capitalist, having been a, an entrepreneur, you know, generically in the sense of sophisticated math, that I found myself in demand for taking some academic spinouts and finding commercial opportunities uh, for them. That's really what I did. And I did, I think I did that uh, pretty well. I did that for things ranging from this firm Ecos Biomedical, which is a, a medical device company, to you know, to some robotics firms. You know, I it was physical robotics firms. You know, not does not to say software robots, but I had a good experience doing that after uh, working in statistical arbitrage. And then uh, the opportunity arose to go work in Washington where I would be working as a, an authority on AI. And this is also not to be confusing skill and, and luck. It's probably a little bit of both. It's just good fortune that AI was then becoming a hot topic conversation. And I happen to have a credible background to support that need inside of the government and inside of the White House itself. What we did in the White House was humbly talk up, speak on behalf of the president, right? You can presume to talk about AI uh, as if you were them, but humbly speak on their behalf to the rest of the executive, the executive branch being state and energy and defense, of course, and also others like uh, transportation, veterans affairs, health and human services. Though there are colleagues in those other uh, departments with whom a bipartisan story would easily be told about coordinating our efforts for really the definition of AI, the definition of robotics, and then the coordination of the research funding that the government might embark on for the next decade. That was really uh, rewarding work, fantastic people, hardworking Americans looking to benefit the American people. I hope I get the opportunity to do that again. And it's even a better job today, actually. It got turned into a department. So there's now a really a little initiative project of AI. It has its own logo now. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been it's been elevated where the head of that group is now a cabinet level official. Uh, it used to report to the chief of staff and now reports to the cabinet, which is cool. So I know the people leading it. I know the people working there and they're, we Americans can all feel really proud that they're doing good work. They are the people you might imagine being competent to fulfill those roles. And I hope I get to work with those people again and, and work in some capacity around those initiatives again, because it, it's really important. What we did during that time is uh, we expressed the coordination of the executive, the things I can say publicly, we expressed that coordination in reports that, that you might say, well, that's pretty boring. God, I, I, you generated a report, good for you. But you know, if you read the reports, it's an expression of the coordination for a vision of a lot of money, a lot of our taxpayer dollars and the coordination of the initiatives of our society, of our government, and therefore of our society. So it's, it's, it's helpful to read. It is the result of a conversation but it's also there to facilitate a conversation. So referencing those documents can be super helpful. They're still available on the White House archive. I have a different perspective on that now, and I think it's a great resource for, and I might even say not all Americans, but I mean even, excuse me, not just Americans, but all Americans and allies of America. Yeah, yeah it sounds like that period working as an innovation fellow at the administration is really impactful for your career. So you have that broader perspective speaking from the authority of government as well. I'm just kind of curious, like, you know, now looking forward to the future, how do you see the role of artificial intelligence in geopolitics as, you know, more and more countries around the world uh, investing in AI? Where do you see the U.S. capabilities compared to, say, China or Europe or other countries? Just because you have that insider perspective working inside the White House. I think that... The United States uh, remains a leader in uh, computer science research generally, AI research in particular. Uh, however, the one area of research that I fear China may actually be ahead of the United States, and it really may be the only one area, but it's a big deal area, is chemistry. Mm. Chemistry and material science, and why that's a, a big deal, we see now in, in the media every day, but it's not really represented in that way, is that all these special elements contribute to our digital world. These elements are mined all over the world and sometimes in hostile <laughs> areas of the world. You know, a famous one was cobalt, where we'd been nurturing the supply of cobalt in the Congo. Boy, I think we going way back to Truman or Eisenhower, and, and it got abandoned, essentially, during the Trump administration. I think there's some that are, are trying to do a, some a bit of recovery from that. And the Chinese, I think, have disappointed in their takeover of that or their easy takeover of that from the abandonment of the last administration. But the source of cobalt is an example of how important some of these rare earth minerals 
can be for our digital future. And China's uh, progress in their research around chemistry and, and material science is a concern. For computer science, I think the issue is not just to focus on the research, although that's what I just had mentioned is research, but also to focus on the application. There's often a lot of talk about the degree to which Chinese companies and the Chinese government can collect a lot of data and the data is the new oil and all that. You know, I am less concerned about that because I think making use of data is a lot harder than people appreciate. You know, I think investors, companies, governments are beginning to experience a disappointment in their investment around AI technologies. And, you know, this comes from someone who sits on the board of a fantastic AI company that I'm proud to be affiliated with. It's just really, really hard. I think people aren't starting with small examples of projects that can fulfill on the promise of AI. And instead, they're starting in the wrong place. The misapplication, I think, happens because people essentially look at Google and Apple and Facebook as the major leagues. And so they think, well, I want to try being like the major league. I want to wear Michael Jordan shoes and all that sort of thing. But the tools are completely inappropriate and the projects are completely inappropriate, you know, unless you have internet scale data. Google and Facebook have internet scale data. You know, you random company, you know, may have big data, which I think is kind of an outdated term, but you don't have, it's unlikely that you have internet scale data, you know, therefore your ambitions and your tools and your skill sets are probably mismatched for the particular context under which you operate. So I recommend, and my current company, Conexus, works on this sort of problem with some of our clients, but, you know, Conexus' clients recommends these more discrete projects of first making the data available cause an organization for use. It's not so great. You know, Conexus has one client where they certainly got the big data memo. They, they collect a lot of data, but as they have them say it, they don't use most of it. And it's not because it's unusable. It's not the mislabeling or entity resolution or any of that. It's really just because it stays dark because it's just too hard to integrate. You know, it's got a classic ETL stuff. Those tools are from the 80s. Before many of your listeners were born was the founding of Informatic and Ab Initio. And man, those things show it. I mean, they're just old, dated, horrible stuff. You, and to put, put them to use, you use uses vocational level IT technology by these horribly overeducated professionals. You have sometimes people with master's degrees doing this terribly, terribly boring work with those tools. It's horrible. So anyway, that's the, that's the limitation that I think often exists with AI is making that data reliable, making it reliable at the rate of intuition of the data scientists. Yeah, thanks for providing that perspective from that part of view and how, you know, the U.S. still leading in uh, AI research to push for making the best use of this technology. We need to really focus on making the best use of the data itself. And I think that's like transition pretty well to my next question, which is talking about your current journey with Connexus, where you're the CEO and co-founder. And I believe you started this company back in 2018. And based on what I, some research about Connexus, you know, the company develops a technology spin-off from MIT's mathematics department using a branch of math called category theory. So can you share the funny story of Connexus? Yeah, it's fun to say that it was a math spin out of MIT because to have the Institute tell it, it's the first ever spin out of their math department. I can see why, I will tell you. It's hard. It's a particular journey to try to commercialize a discovery in math, or more particularly in our instantiation, we are commercializing the algorithms that were built upon a discovery of math. The domain is related to graph theory. You might think, not strictly, but you might think of it that way. So we talked about graph theory a couple of times earlier in this conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Category theory or categorical algebra is related to graph theory, but it provides a little more structure. You know about graph theory where you have nodes and edges, kind of points and lines. Graph category theory, categorical algebra, allows an infinite, infinitely rich expression of detail at any one of those intersections. That's the beauty of categorical algebra. That allows an analysis of compositionality. <laughs> that is the future. These emerging composable systems are the future. You know, we talked about Minecraft earlier. I can mention that again, because Minecraft is a perfect recent example of an emergent composable system. It's infinitely expressible at any point. It's a little bit like the difference between a train and a train system. Mm -hmm. 
the train is modular, but you can really only express it in one dimension up to a couple of miles. But a train system is infinitely expressible. At any point, you can expand the train system, a little bit like Minecraft, right? That's the future. Relational databases, we come back to technology in software, relational databases, or even graph databases are really just points. You know, they're just really data points. But the future is really held by models. It's held by knowledge. It's held by the information in our head. You know, we are not ourselves walking around as collections of data. That's really becoming quite old. We are, but we are, however, collections of wisdom, of thinking, of experience, of a whole bunch of if this, then that statements. We have that in our head, you know, implicitly. You know, the future is really held by those that can express the implicit explicitly. What Conexus does is capture that explicit knowledge in a way that then could be shared with others and scaled infinitely. That's what Conexus does. We apply this discovery in math to databases. Yeah, thanks for sharing that context. And there's multiple articles, resources on Conexus website explaining what is category theory is, and I'll be sure to include some of the articles in the show notes so anyone interested can go and keep on to what Eric just mentioned. The main platform of Conexus provides some solution in data consolidation and data interoperability. Yeah, good much caught up going over like how the solution works at a high level, borrowing from category theory. Yeah, I'll say it in a couple of ways. I can mention one of the customers of Conexus and how they say it. This is a big industrial company, you might say a Fortune 50 company, a company everybody has heard of, many of which interact with every day. But they're old line, they're industrial, they work with hard goods, they work with engineers in the traditional sense, not software engineers. They tell the story like this to their leadership. They say, hey, have you ever had of a group of 10, 20, 30 engineers in a room and you had to reach consensus among them? You had to get the quiet one to speak up. You had to make sure the loud one didn't dominate. And you had to get some agreement through that group about any number of things that engineers need to agree on, the specs for a particular machined part, for example. Well, even if you did that, do you notice that once you establish that consensus, that the very next day it breaks, either because you added somebody else to the conversation or because everybody had to go back to their own interpretations of what was agreed. Well, that's what Conexus solves because Conexus guarantees down to the level of math, down to a law of nature, guarantees that everybody felt heard and they felt heard in that conversation in the way that they wanted to feel heard, that their context, their meaning, what they wanted to say was represented exactly as they wanted it to be represented. And it will be forevermore because it's represented down to the level of math. And you might think, well, great, good for you. Isn't that just called putting stuff in an Excel document? And they'd say, no, the, pro- the reason is because that doesn't scale. Mm-hmm. It doesn't scale. You start connecting uh, any number of points on a graph and the possible connections. So in other words, the possible connections of knowledge that expands exponentially, or more accurately, quadratically. It expands quadratically. What Conexus provides isn't magic, it just it allows for that expansion to occur linearly. And out of that, universe of opportunities emerges. If you have three data points, fine, exponential, quadratic, or linear, whatever. But if you say, I'm going to have 30 or 300, or 3,000 data points, or 300,000 data points. I mean, it's just, it becomes just an unfathomably large number. Back to the point that I, we raised earlier in this conversation about uh, statistical arbitrage, it becomes computationally intractable. You have to solve this at a different level of mathematics. That's what many of Conexus's clients have come to realize, and many have come to us, and that's what Conexus solves, is Conexus guarantees the integrity of the meaning of data during data transformation. Yeah, you guarantee the integrity of the data, meaning of the data during the data. data. Meaning. We guarantee the semantics. Semantics. 
of data. During data transformation. During the transmission. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks for capturing that succinctly during your answers. Yeah. So I'm just curious, like, you know, what are some of the initiatives, product or go to market that you most excited about for Connexus in the rest of 2022 and upcoming years? What's the company working on? You know, there's a term around digital twin that's becoming trendy right now. I think digital twin is going to become the next big data. It's just going to become silly because people are using it as marketing hype where they can't really deliver what they're saying. And so I think that's going to become an outdated term. You say overrated, underrated, that's an overrated term is digital twin. I can also say that I think people are beginning to recognize the importance of data relationships. So we talked about having a quadratic explosion of data. That's true. There's also a quadratic explosion of data sources. So the big new thing is going to be in the data relationships, because if you have a quadratic explosion of data and a quadratic explosion of the collection of that data, the data sources, then the data relationships are unfathomably large. They're just, some people say combinatorial, which doesn't quite make sense to me, but it's just, I'll, I'll just say very big, you know, it's a very big number. And those are the data relationships. How to manage data relationships is going to become a career skill in the future. What we're then going to do is turn these data relationships into modules. We're going to encapsulate these business rules into repeatable processes. Now, whether you want to get all fancy and sell that as some sort of NFT or to sell that module uh, by itself as its own entity, uh, that's a business rule, you know, go to it. But, you know, we see the beginning of expressions like that with uh, many of the new direct-to-consumer e-commerce companies mm -hmm. where they are rearranging modules from Google Analytics to uh, Shopify to have new expressions of anything from a a new whiskey to a new pair of jeans, that wasn't possible a decade ago. And it is today because these expressions of emergent compositional systems that allow for the rearranging of these modules of these business rules in a way that scales, that's going to continue to expand. That opportunity is just going to get bigger and bigger. And the skill in the future will be taking these modules and quickly rearranging them in different contexts. Yeah, I see. So really managing data relationship by turning them into, into modules and rearranging them so that they can make the best sense for business, right? So finally, I noticed that you are writing a forthcoming book Yeah. Or the coming composability, yeah. the roadmap for using technology to solve society's biggest problem. Gujima is providing a sneak peek of what you plan to cover in that book. We're talking about it a lot in this conversation, but what we'll additionally expand in the book is the roadmap to expect around compositionality and how people can participate, you know, exactly what they need to do. You know, there are 30 million computer programmers in the world, something on that order. And if you either you're one of those 30 million, or you think it might be smart if you became the 30 millionth and one computer programmer, there's a way for you to participate in this new epic. And I'm going to claim without intentionally being hyperbolic that it, it is a new epic. You know, the last epic of logic, you know, helped us create computers. You know, the math in that epic of calculus and relational algebra, really great to create relational databases, but it's, it's really of less use today. It's of less value. You know, you may say the more math, the better, but if I were to choose, I would say I might get rid of geometry and trigonometry and even calculus and replace it with statistics and probability and categorical algebra. That's the math of the 21st century. The future is going to get away from modularity, which powered the industrial revolution, to log and, and logic that powered the computing revolution, to compositionality, which is really a math of maths that's going to power the 21st century. Yeah, definitely excited to see more and more investment to focus on compositionality. And I'm definitely excited to read that book as well as, as you released. So Eric, at this part of the conversation, I want to move into the final Queen segment. I'm just going to ask you three rapid-fire questions, and you can give the quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the broader AI community whose work you admire. Kai-Fu Lee, Andrew Ng, and Eric Shing. All Carnegie Mellon people, by the way. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> very, very strong CMU alumni there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Got to be loyal. Number two, name one book that you would recommend for people to cultivate a leadership message. 
Oh, that's an easy one. I'm going to recommend my wife's book, forthcoming on Amazon, released May 10th. You can pre-order now. It's oh, wow. It's called Reculturing. It's on corporate culture. It's based on a widely shared Harvard Business Review article. It talks about culture in a real way that can be created and managed, not just represented by the tired old ping pong tables. Reculturing is the name of the book. Reculturing. Okay, I look it up for sure. And then finally, imagine that you can send out a single message to all the first-time founders on social media. What would you say? And this is really because you are zero entrepreneurs, found multiple companies. Every single message choose from the first-time founders. What would you say? Yeah, for first-time founders, it really depends on the domain. There's a lot to say for very first-time founders. I, and depending on their range of other corporate experience, I think my advice may vary. But if I try and to speak to all of them, I can say that I find resonance with the notion that the CEO's emotions and the management of that is actually something to manage because it's tumultuous. Hour by hour, future is hour, you know, things aren't going to plan. And yet the team looks, looks up ultimately to the CEO for not just a product direction, but also for temperament direction. It has to be something that's managed because you need to be honest and transparent with the team, but also you know, continue to channel the vision that everybody signed up for. I see. Yeah. Really your ability to sort of manage the emotion and, and communicate that in a, in a the most transparent way. Authentic and transparent and, and consistent, a consistent way. Yeah. Brilliant. So I really enjoy our conversation today. I think we go over like your whole career and I really enjoy learning about back into academic background to just in working in finance to your move to Silicon Valley, working in ventures, going back to school, doing academic research in machine learning, network science, public policy, economics, some your time raising funds, investing in AI and robotics, your time working in the White House, and your current journey with Connexus, commercializing enterprise category. And I'll be sure to include everything that we discussed today in the show notes so listeners can have a chance to dive deeper, learn more some of the resources that Eric mentioned, and explore the future of compositionality and how that's going to revolutionize uh, society. So, yeah, Eric, I uh, really enjoyed our conversation and I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. Thank you. Yeah, good time, James. Thanks for having me. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.